given these precious promises, Lord, through the blood of Christ. God, you say we receive every spiritual blessing that heavenly places in Christ. Lord, and I pray, God, that it would take our breath away, Lord, that it would bring us to thankfulness, Lord, it would bring us to tears, God, of not only have you given us these promises, but it's been your joy. Lord, that you didn't have to, God, you were obligated to, but by your own choosing, Lord, you have poured out your blessing, Lord, you poured out your son, God, you poured out your promises. Father, I pray that this morning, Lord, your word and your spirit, God, just through this community of the believers, Father, would bring us to these promises. God, we need them, Lord, that this it's our world, our lives, God, it's hard, Father, but we can be a good cheer because you've overcome the world. Father, so I just pray this morning would be a morning, God, pointing to your promises, pointing to your heart, Lord, that we can leave this place with power, confidence, and assurance of who you are, Lord, not in ourselves, but our confidence, Lord, our steadfastness. It's in your faithfulness and your promises. God, so we just thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. You guys may be seated. Thanks for joining us this morning. This is, you know, there's a lot of things people could be doing in summer and be hiking or whatever, but you have come here to, to be with the, with the body. We really appreciate that. I'm excited to see what the Lord does this morning. We're continuing the book of Ephesians, and for those of you who have been here for a while, it's nothing new that we've been going through this for, I can't remember when we started Ephesians, but it's been a while. We're in chapter 4 and verse 16 today. And the question I have for us is do you, do we have the heart of God? Or to bring that question up from time to time as we go through this scripture together. And as you guys have noticed, we hit summaries every once in a while. What so far is the book of Ephesians about? Because we, we talked a lot about how this is one letter, that this wasn't necessarily meant to be in Latin, um, verses and chapters, but Paul wrote one thought through the Holy Spirit to this church on what they were to do and on who God is. When we look at the summary of Ephesians, we saw in chapter 1 the church was called out. It was called out for this purpose before the foundation of the world. God had had this purpose for the church. In chapter 2, we saw the church's family, that by the blood of Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles were brought together as one man and one body. Now the church can truly be a family by the blood of Christ. Chapter 3, we saw the church was a mystery, that there's this manifold wisdom that will be made known through the church, not only to the world, but it says the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. In chapter 4, we saw the church as a team. And now there's this practical application of all that we've learned in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But now how do we do it? And he says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the call. And he tells us his model. He tells us his plan in Ephesians for how he'll do this. And we were going to have this, but we're not going to today. But next week, we will have um, just a, a little piece on the ESS vision of, of what are we really called here corporately. We talk about it, but so you guys have something in your hand. Of, of what are we called to here as a local church. I'll have some information. And over the next, really, couple of months, we'll be looking at that and just picking apart what is the vision God has for the church. But as we talk about summary, we talk about vision. Now, why is that important? You know, why have we spent so much time on vision and preparation? Because it's not about programs. It's not about we've figured out a good ministry strategy. But why have we taken the time to go through this stuff and challenge our congregation, not just on Sunday mornings, but individually, about the process. We can talk about the process. We can talk about growing up in the process. We can talk about this so much. I want to look at 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. It says this, For this is good, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
came across this scripture in my own personal study this week, and the Lord really connected it to this sermon. And what really stuck out to me is this word desires. And so oftentimes people are crying out, man, I just want to do what God wants to do. What does God want me to do with my life? Or what is the will of God? And there are so many scriptures that says, this is the will of God for you, and it just says it. And here, we don't have to doubt, what is God's desire? And this word desire, I've heard different sermons and studied myself, I, I just didn't quite agree that this word desire is almost like a different type of desire. It's like a heavenly desire or something. This is the same exact Greek word, same function, everything that's used in Luke 9.23 that says if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross. This desire is like a heart cry of somebody. And God's desire, his heart, is what? For all men to be saved. And I believe that we live in a culture that's almost lifted up God as this like object or idea or philosophy. But God has a heart, and his heart, man, is for men to be saved. It's for men to be delivered, and it's not in a vague sense. But individually, God really does love you. And, and do we really believe that? Or is it just vaguely God loves, and he loves the world, and he sent his son? But God loves us. He really does. And, and for us to not receive that or know that, man, it's like stiff-arming desire of God. That's his desire that, we, that he, we would know that he loves us. What I love next in the scripture is the word saved. And we've used the word saved in context of a five-minute conversion from a gospel tract. And I'm not saying God can't convert people from a gospel tract. But it, it, it's turned into this conversion or this new line of thought. But this word saved, man, I, I think a better word for our culture would be delivered. It's, it's you have been delivered from something. And when I got saved, as we would say in college, I had a hard time when people said, well, so when did you get saved? And I like, didn't really know because I was like, well, I grew up in the church and I knew stuff and I did these things. But this, this scripture is getting the word. There is no doubt in my mind when I got delivered. I got delivered as a sophomore in college, regardless of what I was before or not. I was delivered. I was delivered from sin. I was delivered from darkness. I was delivered from pride. I was delivered from myself. And, and that is that evidence. That's what God wants. He doesn't want a five-minute conversion. He wants a deliverance and out of something. But what's so cool, again, about this scripture is in the Greek, you can't separate deliverance and the knowledge of the truth. That this is one phrase that's meant to fit together. That we are delivered for one purpose, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That this deliverance is for an intimacy that goes beyond just being saved, of just coming to a new understanding of something. It's deliverance into an intimacy with a person. And that God's desire is for all men to come to this deliverance and come to this intimacy with who he is. Isaiah 61.3, where we see this again, but, but in a deeper way, he says, To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. This sounds like deliverance, that they are coming from those who are mourning, they're coming to consolation. Those who have ashes, they're getting beauty. Those who are mourning, they're getting joy. Those who are heavy, they're getting praise. And what's the end, though? The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That this intimacy, what does it also do? It glorifies God. And why was Jesus on the earth? Why did Christ die? Was to magnify the Father. That by magnifying the Father, his love for us was demonstrated. But Jesus came to magnify the Father. And the Father sent Jesus to show his love 
for us. That this deliverance is for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God. When sinful people get delivered, man, that gives God praise. When people, sinful people get saved and go right back to what they're doing, that doesn't give God any praise. But this deliverance and this knowing and intimacy of Christ is what ultimately gives God praise and gives Him glory. So why do we talk about this right now is as much as we've talked about the process, how do we think God's going to accomplish this? How do we think that God is going to save, deliver men and bring them into intimacy with Him? It's His process. It's His body. God didn't have to use men, but He chose to. He has chosen to use sinful, messed up people to bring them together in one body to glorify Him as a church. And when we talk about the process, we talk about vision, this isn't for the purpose of coming up with a best ministry model or we read the Bible enough, we came up with some good programs. We believe this vision is God's vision to deliver people to come to intimacy with Christ. And if we're not in His process, if we're not in His vision, how is it going to happen? And my argument is it won't. It will, it, the manifold wisdom of God would not be expressed in a way that it ever could. That the way people can be consoled and have beauty and have joy and have praise, that those things would not become in a passive deliverance without the process and the purpose that God has set forth in His Word. If we don't have His heart, we can't fulfill His vision. So even if we know His vision, we believe that this is His vision, if we don't have His heart, we can't even do it. We don't have the power. We don't have the purpose to accomplish it. So the question for us is, do we have his heart? Do you, do I, do we as Jesus Christ Fellowship really have his heart? Because if we have his plan and not his heart, then it's not going to do any good. But if we have his heart, he'll also lead us to his plan. And so if we focus on his intimacy and his deliverance with Christ, that's his heart. And I believe that it's his heart for us here at Jesus. There's two men who I think displayed his plan, his purpose, and his heart. One did it perfectly, one did it pretty good, and that was Jesus Christ and Paul. I think they both, um, Jesus did it better, but Paul did it pretty good too. Um, and Paul, man, this, he was set on this mission his whole life. And what was he set on? He was setting on, set on the mission that God had set forth for him. That when Paul went into places, he, what, he shared the gospel. What happened? People got delivered. He discipled them and brought people to the knowledge of the truth. Then what did he do? He set up elders and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Why? Because that was God's process and that was his vision so the fullness of Christ would be displayed to the church. And why did Paul do this? Because he had a you know iron grit or he had a, a just he was a really tough guy. There's no way. And Paul did this because Paul had the heart of God. That this was a man possessed by the love of Christ. He says the love of Christ compels me. It constrains me. The only way I can do what I do is through the love of Christ and it's through the heart of God. Not only did Paul fulfill the vision, but he did it under immense pressure and persecution. I want to look at 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28. And we read this scripture a lot, at least I've done it. And we read it kind of fast because there's so many things listed. And we just sum it up as these are all the bad things that happened to Paul. But I want us to like slow down for a second and look at this scripture. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. And labors more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. For the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. I want to stop there for a second. When people were, you know, whipped or, or 40 slashes, I mean, that was kind of the point of death. Paul says five times, just from the Jews, he really received 39 lashes. If you take 39 times five, 
That's 195 times he was whipped by the, just the Jews alone. And I don't know if you guys ever studied trauma or abuse. When people receive trauma and physical abuse, it does stuff to you mentally. It's hard to function when, you, when your body's gone through immense pain. But not only was this Paul's, not, it's not his only tribulation. And this is just the one thing he lists that I was whipped five times, 39 times, by, by just this one group of people. And he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And if you guys read in Acts when Paul was stoned, he was stoned so bad they drove him, drug him out of the city and they thought he was dead and they left him. That it wasn't just somebody threw a couple rocks and he was beaten, bloodied, and left for dead. But yet Paul got up, went back in the city, and the next day went to a new city to preach the gospel and do the same thing again that had just got him stoned and whipped by the Jews. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, and journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles. All these perils in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, in cold and naked. What's crazy about this testimony is not only that Paul survived, but they couldn't stop him. Whether it was whippings, whether it was imprisonments. When he was in jail, he said, you can chain me, but you can't chain the Lord of God. That there was nothing they could do to stop Paul. Why? Because he not only knew God's vision, but he had God's heart for God's vision. And that love of Christ couldn't be stopped. The love of Christ for his people, for his church, can't be stopped. And what's amazing, not only did Paul survive, but what is he, how does he finish this scripture? Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Not as deep concern to get a retirement plan, not as deep concern to get a doctor, not as deep concern to find a car. His deep concern for the churches. Paul was with, man, the churches were on his mind. And what does that remind us of Christ? While Christ was crucified, what was on his mind? What was us? Was the will of the Father. And the only way we can do this is to have the heart of God. This can't be done by intellectual convincing. You can be convinced... Christianity is more logical than other religions, but if you're not convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father and His love and His heart is in you, we can't do this. It's too hard. There's no way someone could endure what Paul did based upon intellectual convincing, but it has to be the power of God and the power of His Spirit. In Acts 17, 6, it says, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. I believe Paul's spirit was provoked about the idolatry in this place because God's spirit was provoked about idolatry in this place. I believe the question for us as a church is, does the idolatry of Fort Collins provoke us? That there is idolatry here in Fort Collins, and does that move our spirit? Because I promise you it moves God's. God's heart is broken over the idolatry and the things that have been set up in Fort Collins. Again, he desires all men to what? Be delivered. He desires men to be delivered from idolatry. Do we desire that? Is, is our spirit provoked in the same way God is? And what this scripture reminds me of is Jesus. In that Luke 19, 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. That as Christ approached Jerusalem, the very people that were about to crucify him, what was on Jesus' mind? His pain? His, his heart break? No, what was on his mind was these people. Man, he wept over the city. And the question for us is, do we weep over Fort Collins? 
Do we weep over the idolatry? Do we weep over the rejection of people that they have for Christ? You know, is, when we see sin, is it a bitterness of like, oh man, people are sinning in the church? Or is it, is it this brokenness of, man, God's heart is to deliver men, and these people are undelivered? That God's heart is to bring men to the knowledge of the truth, and these men do not know who Christ is. And that is what Paul's heart was. That's what Jesus, his heart was. And finally, in Galatians 4, 19, he says, My little children, from whom I labor in birth, again, until Christ is formed in you. That Paul wasn't just, again, focused on the deliverance, but once people were delivered, it says he labored in birth until Christ was formed in them. You know, this, what, what Rick preached on last week of this growing up, of this maturity in Christ, that Paul, he had, it was so intense for him to want people to grow in Christ, it was like he was having birth pains. I know there's people here who have had birth pains because you've had children. I had a kidney stone, and that was super painful. And I've heard it's like maybe having birth pains. And man, that's not something you naturally do just because you feel bad for somebody. Man, that type of groaning and travail and deep heartache for somebody, why? Because it produces life. You don't have babies and go through that just because they're not real. We go through it because there's life in it, and there's life in the body of Christ forming into Christ. There's life and there's deliverance and the knowing of Christ. So I know it's a long intro, but the purpose is, before we talk about this vision and what is laid out in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, if we don't have the heart of God to fill the vision, vision doesn't do any good. It may be the right vision, but without the power of God and the love of God, we have no power to complete it. And as we come to the end of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, verse 16 is really the picture of what comes out of the gifts that God has given, what comes out of the saints being equipped, what comes out of the work of ministry and the edifying of the body in this unity is this picture we're going to see in verse 16 of just this beautiful picture of a body working together and expressing who Christ is to the world. I believe this scripture has four main points that I want to hit on this morning. I'm sure there's more, but four we'll hit on this morning is, I'll read it first here. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by where every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I believe there's four parts here. There's vision, that the church of God possesses vision, that his process in his heart, it requires teamwork, it requires stewardship, and then it requires a demonstration of his love. And the first part we're going to look at is, is vision. When we go back to this, it says, from whom the whole body joined, and this word joined means organized or placed in the right spot. And so as the body of Christ, it's not just do we come to church, but are you organized, are you placed in the right position according to the body of Christ to fulfill this vision? And again, it sounds like that's complicated and it's, you know, we just have faith. But God uses the, the comparison of a body for a reason. And your body has things placed in a specific purpose for a reason. I want you guys to think about if your stomach was attached to your knee, and you're running, and you tripped, and you fell, and your stomach broke, and splattered all over the sidewalk, man, you would die. There's a reason why your stomach is not on your knee. There's a reason why your stomach is in your body, because that needs to be protected, and it has a certain function. That there's a reason why this word in, in the Greek is saying that it's joined, it's placed in its proper position for a purpose. And the question for the body of Christ today, are you placed in a proper position for the purpose of God within the body? And if you're not or you don't know, or you're thinking, man, I've never really thought about that, that's something we need to talk about as a church and as a leadership. Because really that's on the leadership. 
to help you guys with that. And that's for you guys to help the leadership with where you're at and where we can even fit better in order to have this be accomplished. But that can't go unaddressed. It can't go unaddressed when people do not know where their position and the vision for the body of Christ. The second piece, he says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together. This knit together means united or like forced together, kind of like forcefully. And this didn't work for service, but I'm going to ask it again. Who here, by show of hands, knows what the patellar tendon is? Okay, that was a little bit better. Almost everybody knew what it was the first service. I was hoping people wouldn't know what it was because I was studying what tendons do people not really know what they are. And the patellar tendon was one that stuck out to me. And for, I think it was for a good reason. It's from the Lord because the patellar tendon, without it, you can't walk. And if that gets cut or that gets damaged, you can't walk. And it's a, it's a bridge to connect three other parts. That there's a part of your kneecap that connects to the patella tendon, that connects to the tendons in your quadricep, that connect to your muscle, the quad. And the patella tendon helps all four of those pieces work together so that you can walk. But you can cut that patella tendon and you can't, your leg would be in. You couldn't move it at all. And the purpose is, is that there's this forcing it together that not only is important for you to go spiritually, but your part makes other parts of the body function. And without your part functioning, there's parts of the body of Christ that can't function the way they could otherwise. And there's this joint and fit together when the body is working properly that makes the quadricep, the kneecap, and the patella tendon all work according to what God has, has promised. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about when one part of the body suffers, the rest suffers. That when one part of the body is magnified, the rest is magnified. But if we're not placed where God has us in the body, and we're not fitted together as a team, now we can come and go as we please. It doesn't really affect anybody. But that's not God's plan for the body. That God's plan for the body is that we would be so knit and, and, and put together that we would function according to exactly how he would have us, just like the patella tendon does for our body of connecting the parts. Third piece is stewardship. As we talk about from whom the whole body joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. There's two words I want to look at on this, and that is every joint supplies. I guess that's three words. One phrase, every joint supplies, and this word share. This phrase, every joint supplies, is talking about a contribution. They are contributing something to the body. They're adding to what is going on. But the second one is really interesting to me. It says share. And in the Greek, he's talking about an allotment or something given to you. And so when you look at, say, the parable of the, uh, of the um, talents, God had entrusted certain men with certain things to use those for the glory of God. There is an allotment that each person in the body of Christ has been given for God to use. And then this allotment has a responsibility and is meant to contribute to what God is doing um, overall in his vision within the body of Christ and even within a local body. And so the question is, within a vision of being joined together and between having teamwork of being knitted together, are we stewarding well our part? Because maybe we do know our part and we are working with others, but what's the quality of that? Are we stewarding well what God has given us to do our share of the allotment that he has put before us? And the final piece here is the fourth point. It says, to be edified in love or this causes growth of the body to the edifying of itself in love. I really believe that a body of Christ that is being edified in the love of Christ will be demonstrating the love of Christ.
So if we are being filled up by something, that is something that we're going to take out when we're out in the community. But this edifying of the love of Christ is, is this sharpening as Christ grows us in the vision that we are sharpening each other and we're coming to this fullness and we are growing up as a body should grow and that we're able to demonstrate what we have. But if we don't have the love of Christ, it's really hard to demonstrate that. Or it just kind of becomes fake and it becomes band-aid fixes and short-term things that don't really change what God is doing. But when we're edified by the love of Christ, we have this heart where we live in a different way. We edify each other differently. We edify each other for the long term. Not just for what we need this week, but we need the edifying that comes from the Lord that we can edify people as Christ has edified us. So if we look at those four things, I pray that we can Ask the Lord, man, what's maybe unclear in our life or our church? Maybe you're thinking, I kind of feel like I fit in those, but I have no idea what Sarah does, or I have no idea what Mikey does, or I have no idea what Peaches does. Like, we need to know what the body is doing as a whole. And so if you have questions on this stuff, it's, again, stress how important it is to ask questions. And trust me, leadership will never be offended if you don't know something. Because if you don't know something, that's our problem, and it's our duty and call to help you know what that is. And even if we've said it, we've got to communicate in a way that's it's in the congregation. And so never feel like you can't ask these questions. And if some of this stuff's unclear, the body's health is so important that the body knows what the vision is and knows that they are a vital part about what God is doing in Fort Collins. So as we talk about this vision, I want to go back to our question, do we have this heart? Do we have this heart that we saw in Paul that no matter what happened to him, the love of Christ compelled him. But it wasn't just a knowing, but this intimacy from being delivered from his sin and being delivered to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's three red flags I want to look at of patellar tendon busters. If you're patellar tendon bust, you can't walk, right? And so what are things that can bust our spiritual patellar tendon that would cause this body to limp or cause this body not to walk in the way that we're called, would cause us not to be able to fulfill Ephesians 4, verse 16. I believe there's three things. Pride, about making a name for ourselves. Two, selfishness, putting me before we. And three is hypocrisy, being professional actors. I know for one and two look somewhat similar, but as we look at the scriptures, there, there's a pretty, pretty big difference. Luke eleven forty three 43 says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. You know, everybody kind of bags on the Pharisees. and like, oh man, those Pharisees, they were so hypocritical, they were so prideful. I don't know if we've ever lived in an age of more spiritual competition than we see in the church today. Everybody wants to be um, the person who's seen as spiritual. Everybody wants to be the person who's seen as a leader. Everybody wants to have the word. Everybody wants to be the, the big impact of the man. Who just wants to serve? And who wants to vacuum? And who wants to, to visit people when they're sick? Who wants to do those things that are behind the scenes? And Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe. And woe to you if you desire to make a name for yourself. This just wasn't just something that was a small thing, but something. Jesus doesn't use the word woe very often in Scripture, but what he does, and it's a very serious thing. Luke 14, 8 through 11, he says, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, but let one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That in taking the higher place, man, when, if you look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, it has no room for people who want to take the higher place. And if, if we do that, man, we're just going to hurt ourselves, or we're going to hurt others. But if we would humble ourselves in the Lord, he says he'll lift us up. It's not that our role is not important. And man, you may very well be the very anointed person that God uses. That, that could be each one of us sitting in this room today, but the point is, will we first humble ourselves and meet Him? Or are we, are we the ones that have to be seen? If we are, then those are things that, that will get in the way from the body being what the body is supposed to be. Second thing is selfishness. Ephesians 2, or Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this one's super hard because our idea of selfishness is like, I don't do anything blatantly super rude. And it's like, if I don't do anything really rude, I'm just not that selfish. But selfishness means you're more important to yourself than other people are. And that's a challenge. And that our security isn't as important as someone else's in the church. Or our ability to get food, man, if some, we got to make sure everybody in the church has food before I have food. I mean, that's what selflessness, that's what he's talking about. And, and how do we know that? Because he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Man, Jesus had everything, but yet he gave up everything for people who had nothing. Jesus put our lives, our salvation above him being crucified, that Christ was the one who set this example. And we talk about wanting to be Christ-like and love like Christ loves. And this is what it means, and it's tough. It's tough, but he says that, I love the end of verse 3, but in lowliness of mind that each esteem others better than himself. And do we really consider each other better than ourselves, more important than ourselves? Not in value before God, but, but I want to help someone else before I'm helping myself, before I'm tending to my own needs. Finally, is hypocrisy. In Romans 12, 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Word hypocrisy in the Greek really is a, it's an actor, professional person, professional actor. We look at let love be without, not hypocrisy of like saying one thing and actually doing the other, but let love be without being really, really good at faking it like you actually love people. Because if we do that, it will be found out eventually. That if we just put on the front that, yeah, I'm a Christian, I should love people, but that heart of God is in us to love people, man, we can't keep that up forever. And you look at the life of Paul, if that would have been his philosophy, he would have been out in like the first week. But yet there's this, there's this genuine love that can only come from Christ. And that the cool thing about these three issues, desire to make a name for ourselves, selfishness and hypocrisy, these are naturally in us. As people, man, these things are in us. And if we aren't actively getting before the Lord, if we're not actively giving his heart, we're going to do these things. And also, the cool thing is, if we love genuine, we're not going to become people's crutch, or we're not going to become the it for them, because they're going to find, man, we're not that special. Christ is that special. And, and when we actually do this stuff genuinely, we're going to see the flaws in each other, but it's actually going to bring us together and bring us more Christ. But when we're so looking for people to be so perfect, and pastors to be perfect, these people to just represent this perfect image of who Christ is, they may be great examples, but they're going to let us down. That They may do one of these things from time to time, but when we are set on holding each other accountable, that, man, we can't allow hypocrisy, we can't allow selfishness, we can't allow making a name for ourselves to be the theme of our church. 
That man, when we see that stuff in our church, we got to be able to call it out and walk through it with each other. Why? Not because we want to be the person who's right. We have the heart of God for that person. If that person's stuck in, stuck in hypocrisy, I promise you, God wants them delivered. And, and, and if we have God's heart for that person, we're going to want to talk to them about it. But man, we're afraid to talk to them about it because do, do we love them like God does? Because God doesn't want them to stay there. He doesn't want them to be stuck in sin, but rather to be delivered. As we begin to close, um, we can start to get ready for um, our offering and the worship crew can start to make their way back to the top. Last point I really want us to think of is a healthy body cares for the health of the body, if that makes sense. A healthy body cares for the health of the body. That if your body didn't send you signals that your ankle was sprained, that little teeny problem would turn into a huge problem. Because if you couldn't feel pain, your body tells you your ankle's hurt because it sends you pain. If it didn't give you pain, you know how swollen your ankle would be in about two weeks of walking on a sprained ankle over and over and over? Or can you imagine if you were bleeding internally and your body didn't send you signals that, man, we're bleeding internally? You'd die. And in a healthy body, man, when we are a healthy body of Christ, we will care about the health of the body. Because in order for the body of Christ to affect the city, we've got to be healthy. We have to be like Christ, not perfect, but we do have to be healthy. We have to demonstrate his love because people don't, they don't need our love and they need his. And they don't need our truth, they need the gospel. Amen. And that people have tried to come up with their own truth and try to come up with their own good works forever, since the beginning of time. And it's never fixed anything. And but the love of Christ and it delivers, and it brings to a saving knowledge of who the person of Jesus Christ is. We can bring the offering. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for the example that Jesus Christ is. Lord, I thank you, Father, that this vision and this purpose and this heart of God is so impossible, but yet you've made it possible by the Spirit of God, you made it possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray, God, that you please break our heart for the city. Lord, that our, our hearts would be provoked by the idolatry, Lord. Lord, there are kids and, and just young ones, Father, growing up in complete darkness, Lord, with no way of truth. Father, that the name of Jesus is becoming less and less common. Lord, there are more and more people who have never heard of you right next door to us. Father, and I just pray that the breaking of your heart, Lord, be the breaking of ours. God, and I pray, Lord, whether it be giving, whether it be evangelism, or whether it be discipleship, Father, that we do what we do by your heart, Father. Um, God, our desire, Father, to know you, Lord, by faith and by obedience. God, so I just pray, Lord, to bless this offering today, Father, that we would do it in obedience to you. God, that Edesis would be a good steward of what is there. So thank you, Father, to you in Jesus' name. As always, if, if anyone has a word or something the Lord has been stirring up in them, uh, we'd love for you to share that um, with your body. But uh, as, as we close in worship, just know that the altar is open for prayer. If you want to pray with people, you're free to do that. But if you have a word at any point, feel free to come up and share that.